You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available for pre-order wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. History is like physics. It informs the world that you're living in. Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so today we are so thrilled to welcome award-winning, best-selling author and poet Nikita Gill to the podcast. And her brand new collection of poetry, Where Hope Comes From, is out now in shops. If you don't already have it, please go get it. This is going to drop in February, by the way. It'll be out. Hi, Nikita. <laughs> Hi, Nikita. <laughs> Hi, it's so nice to be here. I'm so excited and pumped about being here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited that you're here. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, so we are both huge fans of Nikita's poetry, her writing and her activism. And when I read Great Goddesses, I was in total awe. And if you haven't read it yet, just go pick up a copy. It'll be like a great winter treat for you or summer or whenever you're listening to this episode. It's great bathtub reading with a glass of wine, I gotta say. Or like if you're on a beach and you've got like a cold frosé. But for me, Great Goddesses is this beautiful meditation on the Greek gods and goddesses. It's really haunting. It's fiercely feminist. It's filled with so much insight and, you know, heartbreak because mythology has a lot of heartbreak. 
absolutely no surprise as a mythology nerd. I was just so bowled over by the research Nikita did and the depth that she brought to these myths and short stories she wrote. So I was I was telling Nikita offline, I read Great Goddesses uh, a while ago, and I just read Girl and the Goddess, which um, has a lot of Hindu mythology in it because I didn't know that much about Hindu mythology, and I wanted to get that in my brain as well. Um, and I was, I was sitting at the hairdressers and reading it yesterday and getting my hair done and just kind of sniffling, and, like having an emotional moment and just saying, I hope that the hairdresser does not notice that I am sniffling right now. It's a little awkward, but it was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Can I take you guys everywhere with me? You're so good for my confidence. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to just pop out of bushes and affirm you wherever you are. (laughs) We'll just be like, yeah, Nikita, do it. You're amazing. (laughs) Or just listen to this episode on repeat all the time. We get app spend. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So anyway, the bottom line is we're so thrilled to have you here. This is very exciting for both of us. And welcome to the podcast. Yay! I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be so much fun. You're both such delights. So I'm going to, I'm really, really, really looking forward to this. When I recorded my podcast with with Liv for uh, Let's Talk About Mitz Baby, she was actually going to be meeting up with you guys like later on. We, we ended up chatting for like three hours and we ended up having to cut it short. So three hours ended up being cut short because <laughs> she was going to go chat with you guys. So she was going straight from me to you guys. So I thought that was, you know, that was really, really cool um, that we, we've actually ended up meeting and having a podcast together as well. So exciting. So lovely. <laughs> I think the first time we tried to record with Liv, we talked for like six hours and I don't think we even used that recording. Like... <laughs> We wound up just having to redo the actual recording part. We talked for six hours while drinking and then tried to record. We were recording something about Dido. It was Dido, Dido and Aeneas. And I got real ragey. But also because of the time zones, I'm in the UK. Jenny's in New York and Liv is in Canada on the West Coast. Like we're literally spanning like eight hours. So it's either really early for one person or really late for one person. So every once in a while I'll be like, guys, I'm just tired now. <laughs> or like, it's just real early for Liv. Well, you're in the UK. Where in the UK are you? Because I'm, I'm in the UK too. I'm down in the London area. We should meet. We should have like a coffee or something. That'd be amazing. Yes, please. We're hopefully going to Greece. So if you want us to bring you back anything, let us know. Well, maybe, you know, as well as I know, Nikita, I may not be leaving this country, but maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I've got very little faith in this extremely blokey, patriarchy upholding white supremacy government. And you can quote me on that. (laughs) Very little faith in them. It's all right. I just get real ranty about how like my my father-in-law has cancer. So we are a lot of things we're doing. We still have to shelter for him because he's on on chemotherapy. And like literally the government's like, well, fuck vulnerable people. We don't give a shit. You know, if you're double vaxxed, if you're not double vaxxed, you can wear a mask. Other people don't have to wear a mask. It's fine. But like, again, since we are talking about history, if you look into the history of every single one of these, the, the Tory government, you will see a lot of really messed up shit. Like they come from long legacies of crappy people and that's why they are the way that they are. So I do I do think that there's like a, a real conversation to be had over there about how, which is, I do this in The Girl of the Goddess, right? The people that inform your existence as, as a human being, it comes from the past. History isn't 
a story. It's not like, and people treat it like a story. You can just turn the chapter on and it's finished. It's not. History is like physics. It informs the world that you're living in, in such a deep and meaningful degree. So it's like when people turn around and say, well, why should I be held responsible for what my ancestors have done? And it's like, are you still benefiting, though, from what your ancestors did? Then you should be held responsible for what your ancestors have done because you're still benefiting from it. It is such a simple concept. But like, you know how we in in the UK, we really have some amnesia when it comes to um, acknowledging our past and really what it's doing. Well, it's happening in the US as well now, isn't it? There's a whole fight about critical race theory, which is basically just teaching kids that structural racism is real and how that works and how that has affected people of color throughout history and marginalized groups in the U.S. and everything like that, black people especially. And conservatives don't want it taught in schools at all. They just want this like completely guilt-free, happy experience of school children feeling like America is the best place ever and has never done anything wrong. It's really upsetting. It's even deeper than that. So uh, the Republicans, as well as the Tories, if you, again, look into individual backgrounds, they are the ruling classes. They're the ruling classes in America and they're the ruling classes in this country. And what the ruling classes have essentially done is that they've also manipulated and hurt the working classes and the middle classes. In this country, it's been the working class that they've gone after. But And now what they've done is that they've weaponized the working classes, the white working classes specifically, against people of color and immigrants in this country. Because what they're trying to do is keep us infighting amongst each other so that we don't turn around and look at what they have done and how they have historically benefited from our oppression collectively as a whole. And that is... Again, it comes down to the history of what their ancestors have taught them. This divide and rule thing that is happening across the world right now, like white supremacy's last stand, as I like to call it. But it is, it's that stratification. It's by keeping all of the lower classes against pitted against each other for like the scraps of bread, then essentially you're not looking at the people at the top who are flourishing and benefiting in ways that, you know, you should be questioning all the time saying, wait, why are you getting this? And I'm not like, why am I worried about someone whose life is just as difficult as I am getting something they deserve that I also deserve? Like, why can't we go to you at the top and say, please, please, can you just make a more fair system? Isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? Or, or don't say please, just snatch it. (laughs) Sorry, I I find it very hard. I'm either too aggressive as an American or too apologetic. If you go all the way back, you can look at the Western canon of Greek mythology and find traces of this there, like justifications for it there. And that would tie into a really good question for you, Nikita. Like, have have you seen that in your research? Because I definitely can see threads of that in a lot of your work. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's the concept of it's really interesting, right? So for me, one of the things that I saw in in Greek myth and in Hindu myth, is this concept of our betters. I hate that phrase, our betters. And we see it being used today when it comes to like the ruling classes and like the royal family, our betters, which directly stands against everything that I am as a, as a human being and as a, as a feminist. The concept of people openly saying that these people are our betters is like, it's basically turning around and saying that, you know, I'm very happy being oppressed and dominated and told that I am less than. I saw it in in, um, in Greek history, 
that the concept of of you know there was this very clear hierarchy from slave to like I guess in my head I keep thinking of them as senators because that's what they like walk around with the big uh, white robes and everything. They're the ones that get to talk about art and they're the ones that have the massive houses and everyone else is working for them and it's just it's brutal because that system it reminds me very strongly of something that we have in India which is uh, the landowner system so zamindars and zamindars are basically very similar to what it was in 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 Greece of you know these very wealthy men who had all of this they had these massive houses they had fields and fields they had 100 slaves or thousands of in fact your um how high up you are is also determined by how many slaves you have which i found like quite disturbing like how many people are you oppressing that puts you higher in the hierarchy of of you know rich powerful men so here's the landowner system in india and how it works basically and this is something from way back in the day um in in especially in the rural villages the system still exists where like you have like a zamindar or like who's usually known as like a thakur or, or you know someone who's like a very wealthy man and he has like loads of people working for him for a pittance it's almost like indentured servitude if not outright you have to pay off your debts or something like that to this person it really reminded me of how historically we have had so many people like who are like that and it always comes down to wealthy men who are born into their wealth which is how like you know generational wealth is accumulated so generational wealth it is probably one of the things that i have identified very clearly as the thing that makes people act a certain way people act with like that sense of security that nothing can touch me and that's the thing which i keep seeing over and over and over again when i'm researching the idea that um you can act this way because no one or nothing can ever touch you. Oh, that is absolutely at play in Greek mythology. <laughs> Zeus is Zeus is such a great example of power wielded wrong that that he can just get away do anything with and and do anything to any woman, any person. So many of the 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 male gods are like that, you know. Rape is such a common theme in Greek mythology. It just happens over and over and over again you know and i remember as a kid reading these myths like my mom my mom was the local librarian and there were you know books of different kinds of mythology and i just devoured all of that as a kid and not really realizing what the euphemisms about like kidnapping and this god sees this woman from afar and falls in love with her and sweeps her away and it, in some cases it's actually presented romantically and not really realizing until i was a lot older what that really meant The only one that I ever remember seeing presented as like pretty awful was Apollo and Daphne. Like literally every other sort of abduction or absconding or swept away is like there as a kid growing up in the 80s and early 90s was like there was a romance to it. They get to like have this little affair with this god. He was like, "Oh, isn't that wonderful?" The only one that I've ever seen portrayed in a negative way is Apollo and Daphne. because she desperately is like no no i do not want to be a part of whatever it is you are selling apollo please get away so it's really interesting and i find that it's only been for me in the past maybe 10 years that we start reclaiming those narratives and calling that exactly what it was and making sure that the stories and the way in which we are bringing it to the new generation includes probably exactly the way the story would have been told i think in ancient times because this was a common thing that happened to women and the these stories would not have been as romanticized as they were by 
gentlemen scholars and children's writers when we were particularly younger, like softening them. I feel like it was a lot of like, we must soften these stories for children. But historically, children's stories were not soft stories, fairy and folk tales, which came down and became eventually like in the 19th century golden age of sort of like children's literature and stuff. They became softer because children couldn't handle it. It's true. It's a a funny thing because yesterday I was giving a talk about uh, fairy tales and archetypes and how archetypes are influenced by real life and what those archetypes represent in fairy tales and mythology is very similar isn't it like the reason why they've written about Zeus the way that he is is because he's based off whilst it's its religion everything that we have on this planet is on on some extent at least when it comes to our literature our religion it's man-made you know it's it's been created and it's been created in the impression of the time that has existed. So of, of course, like you would see, the reason why rape is such a common th- theme in Greek mythology or in, in most mythologies is because people treated women's bodies like they were, or, or people's bodies, of, especially people who are of the lower classes, women specifically, like we didn't matter, like our bodies didn't belong to us. Our bodies were made to be colonized by men, by specifically by wealthy men. And we had nothing that we could do to like stand up for ourselves or speak up for ourselves, you know, and that that theme comes up again and again and again. And today we kind of like, you know, we have movements which are kind of like, you know, the Me Too movement trying to protect women, things like that. And how quickly was that movement turned against us? Oh, it was weaponized so quickly. Oh my God, like, aren't we just going too far? Aren't we going to alienate people? Like, it's okay to call out Harvey Weinstein, but what about this other thing? That's just not fair. I mean, my favorite was when men were like, or not men, when some men, um, and I remember having arguments with different men I knew, being like, but this doesn't happen to everyone. And I was like, do you want me to give you seven different examples of this in my life? Or this happening to someone in my life who you know, who didn't tell you about it, because we don't talk about this. It happens all the time. Whether you're beautiful, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're thin, whether you're overweight, it doesn't matter. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I feel like a lot of our work on Fangirl, like our meta work, 
We look at ancient history. We look at ancient mythology. We are in a very Greco-Roman space right now. We'd like to expand our horizons. But I feel like a lot of what our work has turned out to be, like how I feel about what I'm doing on a meta level, is that I'm basically kind of mucking around in the foundations of the patriarchy and figuring out exactly what makes it tick. You know, for example, women are set against other women. This isn't just about women. This is about, you know, people of lower classes being set against each other, too. And it absolutely applies to colonization and classism. Um, But um, just talking about the sexism bit of it, like women set against other women, really rigid gender roles. And the depiction of women's independent sexual agency is like a destabilizing force, which I see a lot in myths. I wanted to talk to you about that. Is there anything that you've noticed in Greek mythology that has been really illuminating to you about how patriarchy functions on a basic level? It's really interesting with Greek mythology specifically because they they don't even hide the way that patriarchy functions in, in, in Greek mythology. They just don't. In, in Hindu mythology, there's a lot of connections to karma and dharma and like what your duty is as a human being to the various relationships in your life and how that correlates to getting to Swarg, which is heaven. It's written in such a way that it's all about you as a human being and what your duties are. So it doesn't focus as much on the misogyny. So misogyny is a bit hidden. But um, when it comes to like Greek culture back in that time, I remember someone actually told me who is Greek and who was studying Greek mythology and like kind of ancient Greek history. She's like, our men used to hate us so much that um, they used to also prefer to sleep with other men because they hated women so much. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but the fact that she even felt like that, studying the work that she was, kind of made me look back at it and go, oh my God, so they valued men to the level that they would also take them as, you know, because people have this this idea that all of antiquity was gay. I wish it was. I wish it was. It's a lovely thing to hope that all of antiquity was gay. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought, sweet summer child, you know? <laughs> it is sweet summer child. It's a lovely thing to assume, but it, it wasn't because they didn't see what they were doing as as gay or straight when they slept when men slept with men they didn't see it like that but also there was a visceral hatred of women they didn't and you can see it in the way that even the goddesses are treated and that's why they kind of talk the way that they do because it's 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 i have a fear and it actually correlates with this i have a fear of men's anger and a lot of women I I know have a fear of men's anger. And there's a real visceral fear of like when men start disregarding your boundaries. And men's anger, even in like Greek mythology, you can see what it can do. Like when it comes to women's anger, it's treated like, oh, she got pe- she was petty and that's why she got angry. And it's kind of treated like a bit of a joke. Like, oh, yeah, here is like that. You know, she just gets really jealous and angry or whatever. And, you know, women's anger is lethal against other women in Greek mythology, but never, you know, it's rare that you see women, female goddesses I'm talking especially, aren't allowed to retaliate against male goddesses for the things that they do. So they go after, you know, the women who are their victims most of the time. No, they do. And this all comes down to the fact that, so Hera is supposed to be second in charge next to Zeus, right? She's a very powerful goddess when it comes to the hierarchy, the established hierarchy of Olympus. There is an entire myth about how she had had enough of him. And for the first and only time, she decided to host a mutiny against him. It's just, it's powerful because she goes 
and she tries to get all the other gods together. She gets them on her side. They all go and they kind of try to take down Zeus. It's all done so cleverly by her orchestra. She's a very clever goddess. And he has one of the Hecatonchires. The, Heca- the Hecatonchires are the hundred hands. They are of the hundred hands, aren't they? That's They're the first children of two of two of the oldest gods. Um, so Gaia and Uranus. So Gaia, who is the mother of the earth, and Uranus, who is the sky, who are two primordial gods. And the Hecatonchires are their, their firstborn children. Or, or no, they are their lastborn children. And they are so ugly, basically, because they are hundred hands and they're, they're considered the monster children of Uranus and Gaia, that Uranus takes them and throws them into hell. That's one version of the myth. He, he does many things. Like One version says that he actually sees them and he gets so put off by them, basically, that he tries to shove them back into Gaia's womb. And then she has to carry them and be in pain, you know, until they are released. And there's a whole story about this. The Hecatonchires are released by Zeus, whether they're in Tartarus or whether they're in Gaia's womb. Zeus actually releases them during the Titanomachy, which is like the 10,000-year war between the Olympians and the old gods where the Olympians win. And because they owe Zeus that debt, when that mutiny is hosted by Hera against Zeus and the other gods come in and take him down, they chain him up and they're like, you know, not going to release him. One of the Hecatonchires comes out and releases Zeus, and the punishment for Hera is terrible because she's hung from the sky. It's awful. She's kind of just left there. It's awful what is done to her, and she never ever rebels against him again, ever, because of the fear of what he did to her that one time. It's it's such a brutal punishment that he gives her as well. He hangs her from the sky and he leaves her there to like weep and cry. And we don't know how many millennia, how many decades because gods live forever that she was just left there as a punishment. Watching everything he just got up to and did and everything going on around her with absolutely no power. And what fascinates me about this is if you think about all of the mythology leading up to Zeus becoming the king of the gods, like how does Zeus become the king of the gods? Well, his dad overthrew his father at the urging of his mother. So like you go back through this history of sort of the second female in command, the second most powerful being, convincing the next most powerful being to overthrow them. So I think that is there is this fear that a woman with that much power and that much ability to wield it, even if that power is through suggestion, can topple everything. Because that's what happens when Cronus cuts off Uranus's uh, bits, that castration phone that, uh, that made Aphrodite. And then Cronus comes into charge. He's like, I'm going to be a good guy. It's going to be a good time. And there are some theories that for a bit, it was a good time. And then he got a prophecy saying his kids would overthrow him. And he's like, well, just eat them. And then they can't do that. I think that's another running fear that you see in the myths is the idea, if you're the top number one guy, the fear of the woman who is your number two working with somebody else to betray you. Particularly your son. Uh, well, I'm just seeing this in the Minos myth that we talk about. We talked about in our last interview with Jenny Saint. There's this chilling story that she told us where Minos, the king of Crete, there's a story about how he invaded somebody's kingdom and um, the daughter of the king helped him because she fell in love with him and he appreciated her help and took it and then tied her to the back of his ship and drowned her on his way out because she had betrayed her father because she went against the patriarchy and wasn't trustworthy. Yeah, it's, it's, holding, it's holding women. It's, so it's what happened to Medea. 
the thing with Medea is she's not the kind of woman you want to do something like that too. But like at the end of the day, she also betrays her father for Jason to help Jason. And how does Jason repay her? By finding a younger model. A younger, not foreign model because xenophobia. Yeah, xenophobia as well is so big in, in, in Medea's story. But yeah, like, again, that's a woman who they fear because she's out of their control. Because if she can betray the patriarchy, then she can betray it. Again, that informs the atmosphere we have today. It's something that really scares me uh, when I see the way that sexual assault victims are treated. Because 50 women can come forward about the same man. A hundred women. It takes like 50 women to get a guy like that locked up and then he gets out on a technicality. They still let him out of prison, but they won't let Britney go. They won't let Britney take that IUD out. She has to go to court for it. And they still won't let her. So we talked about um, Greek mythology and the sort of underpinnings of patriarchy that we see very obviously in Greek mythology. And um, you mentioned Hindu mythology and how it's more veiled. Can you tell me more about how women are depicted in Hindu mythology and um, what that can tell us about the patriarchy in that culture? So Hinduism is extremely interesting as a religion um, because it's a very complex religion. Like it's not quite like a lot of other religions where you can read one, but we have like one text, you know, one book. And that book is, it's not, it's not a single, single book kind of religion. It has... I think roughly so far, I've read like six different books. So there's the Upanishads, there's the Puranas, there's, of course, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, and then there's the Gita, which is like born from the Mahabharata. So there's an accumulation of texts, which you have to study to really understand the concept of of Hinduism, because there's a, there's, it's a very deep concept of balance that creates this religion. It can be very like old school and ancient and old fashioned in that sense that there's the masculine and there's the feminine. And both of those energies have to coexist in balance with each other. You know, so on the face of it, it looks like that this is a very humanist religion, right? Because of, of course, there's like the male gods and the female goddesses. They exist in a majorly equal scale in many ways. Like, so Shiva has Parvati, and Parvati is the goddess of love, and Shiva is the, you know, he's the god, he's the destroyer god, you know, so they balance each other out. So, Atri Murti has a three Devi. So, there's like our three main chief gods have a three Devi, which are our three main chief goddesses. And we believe that there is a, an entire theory in Hinduism that believes that the entire religion was actually created by a goddess. It all came from a goddess, very much like Greek mythology. Chaos is is identified often as she and her, which is very fascinating. So chaos and like the Devi have a lot in common that way. So the Devi is very much like the mother to us all, the personification. And so that that theory I find very interesting in, in Hinduism. But again, a lot of Hinduism talks about balance. So we have to have gods of destruction alongside gods of creation. So every now and then, like Shiva destroys the world because evil has become imbalanced with good or good has become imbalanced with evil. Like it's, there's too much good, literally flips a switch, you know, and destroys the entire universe. And like, then um, Brahma has to rebuild because Brahma is the creator, the main creator of the universe. He has to rebuild the entire universe again. And then Vishnu is the preserver. So he tries to preserve that balance within the universe. So it's a very, it's a very delicate structure. But neither good nor evil can outweigh each other. 
according to Hinduism. And that is really fascinating because all other religions talk about goodness, goodness, goodness being like the most important thing. But Hinduism talks about the necessity of evil, like the, the reason why evil exists. And that's really interesting. So a lot of the religion is dedicated to your dharma as a human being. It, you know, it is expected in a lot of ways that you will make mistakes and do bad things, right? But you have to learn from those mistakes and become better. Like that's the whole point of existence, of living. And it's why the Hindu gods reincarnate so much because they are paying off the price of their own celestial burdens. These are what we call karmic cycles. They have to be reborn, you know, because they're, and they're reborn in every age to teach us something as human beings, but also learn something themselves. So our gods are not above learning. That's fascinating. I'm so fascinated by this. How is women's sort of power and agency represented in Hindu mythology? So, so this is where it gets interesting, right? Like I said, there's a more veiled veil sort of uh, misogyny. And when I say this, it's particularly displayed in the Mahabharat and the Ramayana, right? So the Ramayana, the story of the Ramayana specifically is the one that I keep turning to. And you saw a bit of this in, in, in The Girl and the Goddess yesterday, if, if you read it, it. It's a story of um, the great war, well, the two great wars our gods basically had. The Iliad really is, is, is how I would kind of see the Mahabharat, but it's such an intense, huge book. That's kind of hard to kind of put it in. And I would say the Ramayan sort of resembles the Odyssey, you know, because there is like one character who goes on a journey sort of. Like, so, so the archetypes and the blocking of the story are, are similar. But what basically happens in the Ramayan is that there is a prince, basically, and he is, it's a very long story, but to break it down, there is a king. He has three wives because it's very normal back in the day for kings to have three wives of course, the youngest wife is treated with the most respect and love because she's the youngest wife. Again, misogyny. That's how it works. Um, and our gods also have multiple wives. They have multiple wives. And, and as much as people can try and say that, oh, yeah, it's a very enlightened religion. And what, why do the gods have multiple wives? There's only one woman in all of our mythology who ends up having five husbands. And that was an accident. Ooh. <laughs> so um i'll put i'll put the ramayana aside for now because these are very big books so this is part of the mahabharat and it's the story of draupadi as all good stories start it starts with a friendship and the friendship is between the son of a king and the son of a guru like a teacher you know like one of the wise old teachers our, our holy men our kings used to basically send their sons to an ashram. An ashram is like where the guru used to live, like this holy man used to live. And then that man used to kind of teach these boys, you know, things like meditation, how to be a warrior, maths, science, writing, like they used to turn these young princes into kings. You know, that was their duty as, as, uh, as holy men. And of course, like there was a hierarchy to that as well, like which holy man you could go to. And all of these holy men, which is strange because they are supposed to be holy gurus, teachers, a lot of them were really fabled warriors. So they were the kind of warriors that the gods had given gifts to, you know. And so that's really interesting where they weren't just priests or holy men or, or, or teachers. They were, they were a multitude of things. This particular story actually starts with the son of a king and the son of a, a guru becoming really close friends. And the thing is, the son of a king is materially very rich, whereas the son of a, a holy man teacher guru, not rich, not wealthy, wealthy in other ways, 
right? That's what we like to say. Wealthy in other ways, wealthy in intelligence, wealthy in like being great warriors, wealthy in all of those things. Now, Draupad, who is the son of this particular king, and Drona, who is the son of the guru, become very close. And they're both in the same ashram learning because it's Drona's father who's teaching Draupad how to be a king. You know, in, in the ashram, everything is the same. There's a lot of equality there. Everything has to be taught in the same way. Everyone eats on the floor together. There's no hierarchy, right? So obviously these boys become very close. And what happens is as Draupad is old enough and he leaves, now mind he's grown up with Drona from a very early age. He says to Drona, I don't want inequality to come between us now. If you come to me, I will give you half my kingdom. I will give you half my kingdom because you're my friend, you know, and I love you. And of course, Drona takes what his best friend, his comrade, his, you know, brother has basically said to him and says, that's, you know, okay. And he never really thinks about the fact that he might have to, because he's focused on becoming like his father, like a teacher, a great warrior, the greatest there's ever been. So he doesn't ever think about it. But then as, as time goes on, Drona is very poor and he marries and, and you know, he, he has a child. And one day they see this boy being made fun of, like all the other children are wealthy enough to drink milk. It's something so small. Uh, Drona's son says, what are you drinking? And um, basically, like these boys say, oh, we're drinking milk. And he says, oh, what's milk? And what they do is they take rice powder and they mix it with water and they give it to this boy to drink. And his father's watching this whole thing happen. And then they make fun of him for drinking it because they're like, that's not milk. What's wrong with you? You've never had milk in your life. And they make fun of him which is very, very sad for a father to see, you know, that he wasn't able to provide his child with something like milk. So Drona remembers that his friend told him a long time ago that um, I will give you half my kingdom. So to make his family comfortable, he goes to Draupad and he says, look, you promised me this. And Draupad, by then, obviously wealth has corrupted him. Um, he throws Drona out, his family out. You know, his wife, his child, he just throw in a very unceremonious way. He says, I don't know who you are, completely rejects him and throws him out, which is very heartbreaking for Drona, who saw him as his brother. And this was a promise. But Drona is a very, he's a, but he doesn't let it uh, destroy him in any way. He decides to get revenge. So it's vengeance that, that he goes off. He says this, this, because it wasn't just about him. It was about his wife and child being treated that way, right? That's one way to get under the skin of a man <laughs> is to treat his family like, like shit because it, it lowers his prestige in the eyes of his family. So it, again, connects to patriarchy in a lot of ways. That's how the psyche works. It sounds all nice until you look at it that way. <laughs> mm, it, sounds, it sounds like, oh, he's protecting his wife and child until you realize where that it all comes from and you realize the psyche. So the story, you know, like it goes that basically Drona becomes a very, very well-known teacher, like in the hierarchy of like the great teachers, Drona becomes the greatest one to send your child to. And then, of course, like what essentially happens is that uh, Draupad doesn't really have children himself at all. So obviously he doesn't because he's struggling to have children. And obviously in my head, I keep thinking that's the universe and the, and the you know, like the gods basically going, you don't deserve progeny if you treat people that way kind of thing. But that, that's never explicitly said. But what happens is that there are the, there's another story to this, because again, like Greek mythology, everything is interconnected myths. But the Kuru princes, who are like a hundred sons of a king, and the Pandavas, who are his brothers, this king has a brother who's also a king. 
his five sons. So there's five princes who are called the Pandavas and there's a hundred princes called the Kaurav princes, right? They all go to Drona to study. And Drona basically tells as a final, like he's trained these boys and everything, as a final task, he says to them, you must kidnap and bring Dropper to me in chains. That is your final, that is your Guru Dakshana. That, so your Guru Dakshana is like um, the thing that you pay back to your teacher. They can ask you for anything and you must deliver it. And that's the tuition fee they basically take for being your teacher. And for that's your Guru Dakshana. And he says, you must. It's like your final thesis, really. <laughs> it's a bit more than that. And like, well, my mother was a teacher and I kind of think about the way in which we treat teachers in Western culture. We don't ever think we owe teachers anything for the knowledge and stuff that they impart on us. And I don't know, it's kind of nice to think like there's this idea that maybe we gave a little more respect to some teachers. Right. But this is this is what basically happens then in the story. So the Kauravas try, they fail. Then the Pandavs go and the Pandavs succeed. I'm not going to get into the whole war or anything, but the Pandavs succeed and they bring Dropad in chains. And Dropad basically, you know, is like, very, very humiliated. He's a king. He's been brought in chains in front of this, what he sees as, as just a, a teacher. Drona turns around and says, you do remember me. You know exactly who I am. And Dropit says, what are you going to do with me? He says, I'm going to be kinder to you than you were to me. I only want what you promised me, which is half your kingdom. So Dropit has to give over half his kingdom. But now Dropit gets vengeful. So, and now Dropit doesn't have children, right? So he goes to every single one of his major advisors and his... Um, the holy men in his, his land. And he basically says to them, I need children. I don't care how I get them, but you must give me children. So what happens is there's this massive, like all the holy men, they do this like massive, I don't have the word for it in English. It's like basically like a big prayer that they do to the gods where they beg the gods for what this man wants, which is children. And from the fire, because it's a huge fire, after many, many prayers done by like all the major holy men in Dropad City, two figures emerge. The first is a woman, beautiful woman, dark-skinned woman, um, who is, we call Dropadi. She's named after her father. And he's very disappointed because it's a girl. <laughs> That's not what he wanted. He wanted his, his revenge and he believes his revenge can only be delivered by a man. So he's like, I can't, I can't have revenge with, with a girl. What is this? It's a, a girl, basically. You know, he's very, so the first experience Draupadi has, who's born fully formed, you know, like as a teenage girl, basically. And then he's very happy because right behind her is her brother, who he sees as like the, the, the guy who will, you know, bring him his revenge and like take everything down and everything. The interesting thing about all of this is that, uh, and this is how Draupadi ends up with her five husbands, is that, there's a series of things that happen and like princesses are supposed to have something called a swim word where many, many princes come and vie for the hand and they're given a series of tasks, very much like the Odyssey. And, and obviously Draupadi is of marriageable age and, and Draupadi is like convinced that I really, really want her to marry someone who will benefit me in this war, which I'm going to go against, you know, like the Pandavas and the Kauravas and Drona. And what happens is there's a bow there's a whole story and there's a fish in a barrel and you have to shoot it and no one's able to do it, basically. Other than this boy who's arrived with a few other boys and they're dressed very simply in like muslin cloth and everything. As a very handsome young man, like again, very dark skinned, handsome young man who goes and he's able to do it very easily. Like you have to shoot like that 
without looking and and hit this fish in the eye basically which is what the thing is it's a it's a fake fish it's not a real fish so don't worry <laughs> i was gonna say i feel i feel a bit bad for the fish i mean no no it's a fake fish <laughs> The reality is the fish is out of water at this point in time, so it is probably dead. <laughs> like any way you look at it, yeah, it's, it's up on the ceiling. Oh, it's. I thought it was in a barrel. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's up on the ceiling. That explains why this is hard. Okay, gotcha. This is this is all. It's all very hard. And anyway, so so um, and it's revealed that uh, the prince is Arjun, who is one of the Pandav brothers. He's the middle brother, and he gets Draupadi's hand. So the, the the enemy has basically ended up winning over the, the, the woman. You know, they're very angry. Obviously, Drupad is furious. He's like, what the hell? These are the people that, you know, kidnapped me and took me to in chains to Drona. Like, but anyway, Draupadi goes home with them. And um, what's happened is they've been exiled. Again, another story. And they're like living in this very small little shack in the woods. And the mother basically is inside cooking for her five boys. So you can imagine she's probably cooking up a storm and she's very busy. And like, instead of saying anything, one of the, the youngest boys turns around and says, look, mother, look at what we brought home. And the mother without thinking turns around and says, whatever it is, share it amongst yourselves. Oh no. Now. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> five brothers. Mind you. <laughs> I mean, on on the one hand, you you can cast this in a really empowering way. But they're like all brothers. <laughs> right. But but did she choose that? You know, I mean. <laughs> she she doesn't. She's in love with Arjun. She's completely in love with Arjun. He's the best warrior amongst all of them. So obviously she's in love with him. But because the mother has said this and because mother's word is law, according to scripture, they all end up married to Draupadi. They all end up, she ends up with five husbands. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. What a fascinating story. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? I'm sorry. It took, it took me a little bit of time because it's so, I had to like think about the things I needed to omit because it's such a huge, it's like a book, which is this thick, right? And like, there's the entire genesis of where the boys came from. And there's a huge story to their great grandfather. And like, it's, it's a lot. Okay. How many generations back am I going to go in telling this story? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But this is this is like the gist of like, it's a very basic gist of what basically happens. And then Draupadi is the one that ends up starting the Mahabharat, the, the big war, because she is disrespected by the court of cousins. Like she's humiliated. So what she does is there's this very empowering thing. She, she, she opens up her hair and she lets it down and she says, I will not tie my hair or wash my hair until I wash it in court of blood. Wow. <laughs> I just got chills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will not tie it. I will not wash it until I wash it in court of blood. And that is her revenge on her husbands because her husbands didn't protect her when they were doing this, these hundred princes to her. I find her a very interesting character. There's a beautiful book called Palace of Illusions by Chitra Banerjee Devakarani. Beautiful book. And that is the story of the Mahabharat from uh, Draupadi's perspective. If you're interested, that is a good book to read. So I, I literally, I'm sorry this story took so long to tell, but it is a very... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. We needed all of that. I was telling Jen before we got into this, I was like, I would love to have some Hindi mythology on our podcast. I'm really glad that we got that in. <laughs> but this is a, she's, she's very interesting. So Draupadi and Sita, they're the two mythological figures and they are, they're goddesses in their own right. Sita is a reincarnation of Lakshmi, who's like our goddess of wealth. If you read into it, you realize how much misogyny is there. 
the treatment of Draupadi in the story, and then she the fact that everyone blames her for starting this war, without considering that um, she basically gets bartered, bartered away. Like her first experience is her father being disappointed that she's a woman and therefore can't avenge him. Then she's basically like distributed amongst these five boys because the mother says so. And no one decides that that is a bit of a strange thing to do. Well, nobody pauses to ask her if that's what she wants. <laughs> no, no one, no one asks her. No one asks her if that's what she's comfortable with. No one, because the mother is the most, is the in the hierarchy, most superior. So that's the person that they, they would listen to. And then finally, you know, she is bartered, basically, because the oldest husband, Yudhishthir, has a gambling, his vice is gambling. Oh, this sounds like so much like what happened in like classical Greece and Rome like if your husband had gambling decks you would just be sold because he owned you and you had no you know that's it right there's such a connection it's not it's his debt is your problem yeah 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 and this is also like where the system of dowry comes from right like you're basically all of this money and and cows and and all sorts of things are sent along with you as as almost like you know, your family is paying rent for you to live with your husband or something. It's it's the most ridiculous thing on the planet. And a lot of women have a very large dowry that men squander away. And then they start pressuring those women to get more money out of their families. It's a very, again, the problem is capitalism. But <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> and no social safety net. So the thing that this reminds me of Nikita is going back to who's the Greek mythology version of this? So this idea of a woman being basically imposed upon and bartered away. And I don't know if there was any kind of an assault on her person involved in this, but. Oh, yeah. I was picking that up, you know, this woman being assaulted as part of this and being so incensed and enraged and her husband would not help her. And they just watch. They just watch. And then she's the bad guy for fighting back. Everyone's blaming her for starting this war. Being the bad guy for fighting back is a tool of the patriarchy that you made me think about a lot when I was listening to your live episode about when you were talking about Medusa and how she fights back because she was also assaulted. And then she's literally demonized. Literally. Oh, yeah. So it, it, I do think the Medusa myth is very interesting because one way or the other, what essentially happens is, and this is like the most um, simple way to put it, is that uh, Medusa is, I always look at her as someone who is colonized over and over again. Whichever version of like, whether you believe Ovid's version where she gets um, sexually assaulted by Poseidon or whether you just, you believe that she was born a Gorgon you know, and, and men have just decided that they're going to go over and over and over and over again to like her cave to like try and kill her because they needed her head. As a wedding present, literally her head is part of his mother's dowry or to stop his mother from getting married oh, to some random oh my dude. God, it is so unbelievably problematic. But like more than anything else, it's this poor woman, whether she's a Gorgon or whether she's a woman, I always see the Gorgons as women anyway, because that's what they are. Like, and there's a whole poem about it. Like, are they really Gorgons or were they just women who dared to stand up to the patriarchy and say no? And like, do their voices become shrieking? Do their appearances change into like, do they become, does their hair become snakes, those beautiful dresses that you, you want to possess? 
And there's a lot of punishing women and turning them into monsters in Greek mythology. Like there is, like you said, with Scylla, with Charybdis, there's so much of that. The women who stand up for themselves get monsterized, basically. Yeah, exactly. Women standing up till this date and saying, no, this happened to me and I will not let you shut me down. Those kind of women are shut down over and over and over again. They're demonized or loads of nonsense is put out into the press about them. The press itself will turn around and make up stories about it's very harmful. This is why people don't want to come forward about sexual assault because of this exact thing that is happening in these myths. It's a, it's a silencing tool. My God, my mind is being blown right now. It is. It is a silencing tool. It is a silencing tool and it is used specifically by um, the oppressors to keep the oppressed in our places. I say this with air quotes because I believe our places are everywhere. Not, not <laughs> you know, but it, it, it is something that is that is used over and over and over again. It's, it's, you see it in, in civil rights movements. Civil rights movements are demonized. You know, because the biggest kryptonite that white supremacy has, like white white supremacy's kryptonite, is like cross-racial solidarity. So we all stood up together, and that's the end of white supremacy for you. If every single race turned around and said, you can't treat black people like that, or you can't treat brown people like that, or we stand with indigenous communities, that's the end of white supremacy, isn't it? You know, there's the whole um, stratification of, like, in quotation marks, the good minority. Right. The model minority myth. Yeah, the positive stereotyping. It's just another way to other and create division amongst people who, if they all stood together, would have maybe a different outcome. I see this in like the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of demonization of civil rights movements and the way that in the U.S., the way that white supremacy works here is to frame it as a law and order thing. Oh, these people are just, you know, lawless rioters. I mean, this was the narrative last summer, especially about the Black Lives Matter movement. And that, I think that's absolutely true. So you can, you can say that this tool that we're finding here in the Greek mythology, it's a tool for suppression of voices, whether you are a woman or whether you are a minority who's been colonized and oppressed. It works equally on both of those intersections. It does. It does. And it's very interesting the way that you see it in mythology and you see it in history and you see it in fairy tales. Despite these being our oldest stories, people just refuse to admit that we have problems, that our society has been structured in a way that is still reflected. Like, honestly, why are these things still so relevant? They're still relevant because we haven't moved that far past them in the way that we think. We haven't moved very far at all, according to, like, it was just a lot more bald back then. What's interesting about the Hindu mythology that you were talking about is you were saying that things were very veiled. The misogyny was veiled. And I can, as a totally uninformed white person who has absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, I feel like I picked that up a little bit because there were a lot of elements of the story you told her. I'm like, you know, and if you look at it from this angle, it actually seems kind of empowering. Like the mother's word is law. But then if you look at it from this angle, it's like, well, then that gets, you know, this woman divided up between these men without her consent. It's so much more complicated because she becomes property of all six of them. And one of them might have been a great husband, but one of them had a gambling debt. And therefore, she has to pay the price for the guy with the gambling debt. And the other husbands don't have any say. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very devastating story if you read it all the way through. And you're with if you're a woman, you're with Dropathy all the way. But the way that it's told, it's not told like that in the story. The way that, you know, like how when an abusive person tells the story of the person that they have abused, they will always portray themselves as a hero. 
someone else's fault. Oh, that had to happen to her. Like I put up this uh, tweet about Medusa um, and I shared it on my Instagram. And it basically, the tweet was, you know, like, uh, what is Medusa's story, if not a tale of a woman going to the ends of the earth to be left alone and men showing up to piss her off anyway? Literally, she's like, I'm going to the writing cave. Just leave me alone. (laughs) That's it. Right. So I put up this tweet. And the thing is, like, I looked at it and I was like, she literally did that. She did not want to be seen by anyone ever again. She just wanted to go to her cave. And because she's mortal, I think she was just waiting for her death. And the internalized bit of that, too, is like she thought she was too ugly to be seen by people ever again and unworthy of love. Like, that's the other thing to unpack about it now. And what and what did all of these men do? They came and they basically showed her that everything that she believed there was right. They came there because she was a monster. She was a, she was scary. She, she, you know, and they could like get something from her. Killing her became a game, the hero's game of who gets to kill the monster. I looked at that and I was like, here's a woman who has gone to the ends of the earth. And I, most women who kind of responded because I think Medusa has a huge fan club now um, amongst women because we really identify with her. There was a guy who must have found it because the algorithm kind of took Instagram post everywhere. And he was like, shut the fuck up. They needed her to kill the Kraken or some nonsense. Some wrong mythology. The Kraken. That's not Greek mythology, though. Like, <laughs> It's not. It's like, I'm like, that's not mythology. I'm not going to sit and explain to some like willfully ignorant, uninformed person. The way that they spoke about her there, I was like this. They're basically saying the ends justify the means when it comes to women. You can treat us however you want if you have a really good reason. Yeah, if you have a really good reason, if it benefits a man's growth, a woman can be traumatized as much as the man wants to be seen over and over again in our stories. We started our season talking about sex work in ancient Athens. And in particular, the idea that like, it's a very incel idea, but the idea that sex was a basic human right and therefore had to be democratic, like it had to be something everyone could afford. And the way in which men could treat women was appalling the quotes that we found were you could spit on a woman she means nothing to you whatever you do to her doesn't matter and it's like this just makes me think back to this is their mythology this is the way they're treating women most likely enslaved sex workers a lot of them foreign not greek a lot of them foreigners Mm -hmm. yeah whatever you do to a woman as long as you can justify it by what you need whatever that is and however loose your justification is it doesn't matter yeah, yeah, like that's it. Like it's, it's, we have a real problem. It's something which I saw a few years ago. There was a very well known writer. It came out about that writer that he had basically traumatized a lot of women. And his justification from what he wrote, the justification seemed to be yes, but it helped my art and it helped me grow as a man. So isn't it okay to like the, the things that I did, I don't feel bad for, for that reason, because it helped me grow. <laughs> As long as it leads to great art by a great man. We also glamorized that idea. It was a huge thing that came out. And, and, and he basically, it came out that his Pulitzer winning novel, he had basically cannibalized one of his relationships where he really hurt the woman to write it. And it just, it was the first time that it struck me so hard a few years ago that we are perfectly fine with men abusing women as long as it leads to the greater good. And it's in the mythology and it's in the history. I was actually really curious about um, the intersection of Hindu and Greek mythology, which you mentioned earlier. 
Can you tell us a little bit um, about where they intersect? Do you think these two cultures informed each other in the ancient world and were kind of talking to each other? You know, I think there was a lot of trade that happened. And I know for a fact that um, a lot of India, there were a lot of ports in India, just like there were a lot of ports in ancient Greece. There must have been a lot of trade going on because we know that like ancient Greece was not one single homogenous white. It just it just wasn't because historically, like there were loads of different kinds of people, different races, all it was a big melting pot because of trade. Because of trade of all things, including people, and because of wars. People have for as long as we have existed have gone to war against each other. And unfortunately, in the ancient world, and I'm not saying it's not true in the modern world, but in particularly in the ancient world, a consequence of losing a war meant losing your liberty and potentially being enslaved to the person who conquered your land and then being sent anywhere. Yeah. I mean, like at the end of the day, I just feel like there's a lot to unpack with all of this. And I do think there was a lot of, because there's a lot of similar stories between the Hindus and the, and the ancient Greeks. And like, there's a lot of similarities in Greek mythology. And Hindu. there's an entire book written by a, um, a mythologist called Devdath Patnayak, all about the similarities between the Indian and the Greek gods, like, the, you know the Hindu gods and the Greek gods and the similarities and he's traced them really nicely I think it's available on Amazon or, or anywhere basically he's a very well-known mythologist and it's very very well written and it also talks about you know the queer stories that have essentially been like you know straight washed and but Hindu one thing I do love about Hindu mythology is that Gender is very fluid in Hindu mythology. All the male gods had like female forms. You read about the male gods going off and having children with other male gods, you know, in their female forms. It's very, very, very interesting. Vishnu's um, female form is is one of the most well-known female forms amongst the gods. And that's Mohini, you know, and she's very beautiful and very like, you know, sensual and very like she. So Vishnu really knows how to like, use his body as, as in his female form and he, he has children with other gods and it's all very interesting like there's so much to unpack really it makes me want to again this is why when i when we covered dionysus before there's a period of time in dionysus's travels where he goes to india and he starts a war over over bringing wine to essentially the, the continent of india oh my gosh jen tell us this story <laughs> There's not a lot I can tell you because I didn't do loads of research into it for a really good reason. I was like, there is a whole story about how these gods interacted that I actually want to look at. I'm going to look at this book that you just mentioned from a different view. I didn't want to just westernize it and make it the colonizer who gets together this army with war elephants and he goes to fight against the son of a fire god over why you would drink wine. But what I find interesting about Dionysus in particular of all the gods is he starts off in the mythology as incredibly fluid he is sometimes a young guy he's sometimes very feminine very beautiful isn't there a period in his life where he disguises himself as a woman yeah um there is and i wonder if there is something in his mythology that and that fluidity that maybe intersects and and has to do with maybe how his myth crossed paths with um other mythologies and other people because a lot of time in Greek mythology, he's always said is like, he's come from the East. He's come from India. He's come from other places. So I'm really fascinated to see how they interconnect. So there's like two sides to this as well. Like that really bothers me. That there are some people who will just turn around and, and someone who really irritates me and turned around and said this the other day. They were like, well, 
all all you know the greek gods were stolen from hindu myth or, or from egyptian myth anyway or from and i was just like that's really lazy that's a very lazy way to look at um, other people's mythologies and and i understand where that's coming from you know from this person but it, it it's a lazy way to look at it because all of these things are valid and you can't just turn around and say that all of these gods were stolen from and it's the same with like the roman gods like i don't think the roman gods were stolen from the greek gods you know i feel like what the romans did was they came in they saw here are all of these gods oh they're kind of similar to these other gods that we have and what they did was they changed their gods to fit in with those gods you know that's actually more of what happened but there's this really lazy idea that ah oh, don't like roman mythology because it's just been like ripped off from greek mythology there's a lot of exchange of stories which happened back in the day and i think there's a lot of space to have conversations about all of it because to not do that is not to think critically and it's one of the things that pisses off historians very much or anyone who has any kind of critical thinking is that you can't just turn around and make a really lazy generalized statement like oh this was just stolen from this civilization it's just it's, it's a real problem that i that i have with a lot of the discourse that is going on yeah i think one thing that it's easy to lose sight of is that people didn't live in a vacuum like all of these cultures were talking to each other and learning from each other and sharing stories around a fire or whatever and borrowing and being inspired by each other it's not necessarily all like oh we were ripped off i mean some of it was and some of it was a tool of colonization too like we see the romans doing that like imposing their gods on different festivals and things and places that they colonized so we don't want to lose sight of that either i think that um we see that uh what you said about romans finding their gods and finding a greek god and kind of making them over into the same thing like that kind of happened with aphrodite and venus like they had a venus before they encountered Aphrodite. And when they encountered Aphrodite, they kind of combined them into something new that was Venus. Yeah, I mean, like, look, the all the stories have been told by poets, right? Like, and none of the poets agree with each other. None of them have been able to go, yes, this is the one true timeline. <laughs> to quote Loki, this is the one true timeline <laughs> of, of the Greek gods. There is no one true timeline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, no, exactly. So they are open-minded enough to treat the Greek gods like a multiverse. The same way, you know, there's a bit of a multiverse when it comes to the Hindu gods. So each of the three murti, so Shiva, Vishnu, Brahma, has their own book, you know, and each one states that it was their god, their deva who basically started the universe. The stories completely differentiate from each other, and it's it's very interesting. It really is. you know because you're looking at it and you're kind of going well if they didn't agree on a single true timeline so when people on the internet go no but that is not what happened to medusa this is what happened to medusa and i'm like oh my god greek myth is a living thing you can't turn around and say your version of the story is the only version of the story you can say this is the version of the story i like best but you can't you can't like just choose to ignore all the other versions of the story the other thing to remember is everything about their religions weren't written down and codified in books they were very fluid so it allowed for people's beliefs and understanding of these gods and goddesses to change and develop and adapt as the civilizations adapt this this whole thing about like one the one true timeline it really frustrates me about the discourse because it's very non nuanced thinking it, it's not it, you can't engage with with classics if you think like that You just can't. 
And a lot of times when you're telling a story for modern audiences, when we tell different bits of ancient history or mythology, we only have very few sources to work with. So we have to pick our way through sort of the landscape and say, the sources contradict each other here. Like when we were talking about Spartacus, like someone says this, someone says that this is the incomplete source we have to work with. So I'm going to give you the narrative as best I can give it to you. But you you know, you wouldn't be wrong for saying I'm not 100% accurate. But I also have to tell you something that you can make sense of. Exactly. You got to make choices like you would make choices in telling a story that you made up, you know, I mean, that is 100% true. <laughs> like, it's one of the, the problems of being able to write fiction about a uh, mythological character from Greek myth or even from Hindu myth. You have contradicting sources. So you have to pick the, the narrative you want to tell because you can't tell both narratives because they contradict each other. You can't, like in writing Great Goddesses, one of the things I had to do was I had to choose a narrative because I couldn't, I tried as much as I could to do both, right? Like um, I tried to give Zeus an out right at the beginning. I'm like, almost God boy, what would you choose? Would you choose power or would you choose a lifetime of love? You know, but not being known. And he chooses wrong. He chooses wrong in my head every time. He chooses wrong in the re- in the sources every time. He chooses power. He always chooses power uh, because that is Zeus's inherent nature. So there's like, you know, I, I always connect this somehow to Doctor Who and like the Loki thing that because Loki feels like a, a lost season of Doctor Who to me. I don't know if you guys have watched it. I haven't, but I've seen fan fiction that combines Loki and Doctor Who and I'm very interested in this combination (laughs) the marvel tv show is very much in line with what doctor who is all about it's about timelines and fixed events and fixed events is is something very interesting to me because there are places where all of the poets seem to agree you know where it's like okay there was a goddess called aphrodite whether she was born like this or whether she was born like this she existed and she was the goddess of love so it's all very interesting to me how there are certain things that every so zeus's nature he will always choose power over love like you can look at it, you can look at Greek mythology as a Doctor Who episode where the timeline is just a tangled web, but there are certain fixed events. Yeah, so those are like fixed events. Like he, there are some things that that make sense because that is the inherent nature of those gods. This has been so amazing. This has been just the best conversation ever. I have had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Me too. <laughs> It's been a delight. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And I can't wait to like meet up with you guys again. Like dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, We have a Patreon. You should definitely look into that because dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. To be determined, we will be in touch. So where can people find you online, Nikita? So you can find me on Instagram. No, it's at Nikita underscore Gill. Or you can find me on Twitter where I just, I do a lot of my activism work, digital activism work when uh, via Twitter and I find out a lot via Twitter. So it's at NKT Gill on Twitter. Or yeah, like just read my books. I'd, I'd love it if everyone just read my books. <laughs> You'll cry in the chair at the hairdresser's. And it'll be awkward and amazing and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so when we drop this in February, are you going to have a book that you want to plug that will have come out? Um, actually, you know what? Uh, I think my last, uh, the book that I really always want to plug is The Girl and the Goddess, because that's my first novel in verse. And if, if because we've spoken so much about Hindu myth in this episode, that book is, it covers Hindu myth 
in in a in a way that anyone can understand it you know so if you're new to hindu myth that is a good book to read because the goddesses will tell the character the story and therefore will tell you their story and and it's 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 told in a way that you know you can feel really involved in it so yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really excellent and really heartbreaking and beautiful and fiery and I loved it and will continue to love it and highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again and um to our audience we will see you uh next whenever we see you next. Probably next week. This is the end of the season. I don't I have to look at a calendar. All right. 